So we are going to have a look at this passage we've just read together, um, James chapter 2, and we're, we're following through this, this series through the book of James, it's called Real Religion, because we're seeing time and again, James is taking uh, various tests that we can apply to ourselves and our churches to figure out whether we are followers of the real religion of Jesus and his apostles, uh, the religion of the gospel, which puts Jesus at the center and allows him to transform everything in our lives and what we see and how we act. There's that, but then there's the, the fake form of religion that James is really trying to address because he sees it in the church. He sees it in the churches that he's writing to. And, and, uh, and through him and through the scriptures, you know, we're, we're listening to that same message and we're asking ourselves, in our church, in our churches, um, have we fallen prey to the lie of false religion, fake religion? What is fake religion? It's the stuff that looks like the real thing. It looks like the real job, but it's counterfeit. Um, it's not the real thing. You know, people can learn very easily, can't they, to, to speak Christian, sound Christian, even act Christian at times. But are their lives so transformed by the grace of God in Jesus? Has it, has it made a deep and lasting impact or, or not? Um, because as we're seeing, when, when trials come your way, how you react to that will, will highlight whether you are, more, more often than not, following the real religion of Jesus and drawing strength from, from him uh, and grace from God, or whether, whether your life just sort of, uh, you know, demonstrates that you've been following a, um, a fake version. And last week we saw, uh, similarly, how do you respond to the Word of God? What do you do with it? Are you somebody who has just spent your life listening and being filled with knowledge and, and, and Bible studies and sermons and all that, um, but your life has not been transformed, your practice has not been transformed by doing the Word? Be hearers of the Word, yes, but be doers of the Word. And we saw that last week. And how you respond to the Word will also help you to figure out whether you are following real religion or just a fake fake version of religion. And so today, um, we're going to see now the, th the third test that James brings us. Um, how do you respond towards the poor? How do you respond towards people not like you? People who have not had the same background, not part of the same cultural or, or racial uh, heritage that maybe you have. And so um, James calls that partiality. Um, partiality, showing favor uh, and to, to one type of person uh, and, and showing disfavor, disfavorable um, attitudes towards another type. So we'll see that in a few moments. So first of all, um, we're going to see that real religion, if you follow real religion, it refuses to show partiality towards people. Okay? Secondly, we're going to see how real religion refuses to show partiality towards the law, so people and law. And thirdly, we want to see then how the gospel overcomes our partiality. If you have been struggling with, 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 with uh, racism or, or, or pride or arrogance from whatever position you adopt towards someone else who doesn't share that for whatever reason, um, we, we're going to see together how the gospel will, will deeply challenge that and protect us against that as a church. So first of all, I want to show you from the text that real religion refuses to show partiality towards people. Where do we get that from? Well, right there at the, at the, the top, my brothers and sisters, referring to the whole church here, uh, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality as you hold the faith. Uh, right, right there, I suppose we can start to think that um, you know, holding the faith is something metaphorically we do as, as believers in Jesus. We're holding, we're grasping, we're receiving uh, the faith in Jesus Christ. And, and can you imagine holding, holding a, you know, a large rock or a boulder? You cannot hold faith 
and the boulder of partiality. You cannot hold the faith in Jesus Christ and also be partial. You can't hold two massive uh, boulders at once. It's one or the other. You're either, uh, you know, you're either holding the faith of Jesus Christ or you're starting to um, show partiality towards people. He's saying it's impossible to do the same at the same time. We'll, we'll see what that means in a minute. But the scenario that we, that we have here is that there are those within his churches and the churches that he knows um, that are showing partiality uh, towards the rich and the poor. And, and he gives us this scenario in verses 2 through 4 of a, of a church worship service actually happening or starting. Maybe they're just having their tea and coffee at the back and the music's generally playing in the background while people are, are filtering in. And we've got this scenario where um, there is a, a man, either metaphorically or as has actually happened in real life in some scenario, uh, in shabby clothing comes in and he is treated with contempt by those within the church. Uh, you know, they, they, they say to him, uh, you, know, you sit here, sit down on my feet, or go and sit there at the back, go and, go and stand up there, because you're one of them, you're, you're, you're a poor person, you're, you're not one of us. And yet the rich person comes in by external appearances, got a gold ring, fine clothing, walks into the assembly, and immediately the church say, aha, come here, come sit at the place of honor, come to the front, you know, uh, come so we can all see you and, 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 uh, and you know, appreciate you. They're all over the rich, and yet they are treating the poor with absolute contempt. And, and maybe when you read this, uh, either hypothetical or real-life scenario, you're, you're wincing, cringing. How, how could a church be so polarized against the poor person and so uh, gullible towards the rich person? And yet that's what we have, and that's what James is, is saying exists uh, in some form in our, in our churches. The, the church, in this case, is behaving just like uh, the world would do, the world outside, everybody outside the church. They would look at external um, you know, material possessions and external appearances and, and make judgments on people based on how they look and, and what they're dressed like and, and the car they drive and all that and assume things about them and assume that, therefore, the person with money and wealth is a person of value, morally speaking, Whereas the person who has very little and is dressed in shabby clothing and looks different and maybe smells different is the person who has no value and therefore should sit at the back or sit at my feet like a slave. This is what's going on in the church. Real religion, though, refuses to show partiality towards people. Fake religion. It's just like the world, right? Just like the world. The world just operates with uh, this system, of course, of conditionality, um, particularly in our Western society. What, what, what can you do to help me get to where I want to be? So our relationships and our contractual agreements often um, flow from that conditionality. How can you get me further forward to be the person I want to be? What, what can you do to, 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 you know, we treat other people effectively in many ways like resources. And the, and the church are doing exactly that. How can you further my cause? How can you boost my appeal? The rich, the powerful, those with means, they're the ones who are worth getting alongside and schmoozing with. Uh, and uh, you know, they're the ones just trying to connect to. The poor, what's the point? They can't give anything. You don't gain anything from, from relationship with the poor, whoever they may be, so worth just ignoring, kicking to touch, minimizing, what have you. And this was happening in the, in the church. Scandalous. But God, of course, sees very differently, and, and James is very clear there um, how God sees things. In fact, we've, we've seen this already. It's been suggested to us earlier on in the letter, in, in, in um, verse 27 of the first chapter. 
Um, but, but James sort of outlines it a little more and just shows God's uh, special heart for the poor in verse 5. Uh, he says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? God has a special heart for the poor, um, for the orphans, for the widows. He is, he, is, he is specially fatherly, if you like, to those who have no father. Uh, he is a wonderful husband to those who have no husband. He loves to display his riches through those who are poor. And that, that, that word poor in, 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 the, in the biblical context means, of course, materially poor. It can mean uh, every type of poverty you can think of, socially, spiritually, materially. God loves to show his riches through the poor. And uh, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, especially the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that it was often the poor, it was the downcast that surrounded Jesus in his ministry. They, they flocked to him, perhaps because they had been treated so badly or, or, or treated like sort of social lepers, basically, by the religious establishment, by the, the church of his day. And yet they flocked to Jesus. They were open to his message, you know. And maybe that's because the poor, uh, uh, those on the fringe of society, were a lot less self-deceived. The less money you have, the less means you have to cover up your sin and your shame. The richer you are, the more closed you are. That's just a general rule of thumb. The more closed you are to God and spiritual things because you are um, comfortable. You can cover up the darkness in your heart with your money and your lifestyle. Jesus said himself, didn't he, a couple of times, he said how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel, big brute of a thing, to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says there, James, coming back to James again, don't forget, folks, it's, it's the rich who blaspheme the name of God. It's the rich who sue you. It's the rich who throw you into prison and oppress you. They're the ones you get the trouble from, and yet here you are all over the rich man as he comes into your church. See, fake religion is completely the opposite to God's assessment on, on people and their value and their worth in his eyes. Can you just imagine in our church one Sunday morning, imagine a person who, who comes in those doors just there, um, and you can tell instantly they, they are a person who, by their dress uh, and perhaps the way they look and... and uh, everything about them, that they are from a, a difficult background, a challenging background. Difficult socioeconomic status, maybe a different racial background. How do you think we would respond? How would we respond? How would you respond if you're stood there drinking tea and coffee and someone like that walks in? How would you respond? I um, gave some uh, summer cover, preaching cover at a, at a church that I later joined. Um, some years ago, and I remember quite clearly uh, a girl who came in to, to the back of the church, and um, I, I did two Sundays back to back, and she came in both Sundays. And uh, you could tell that she was clearly outside of her comfort zone, and yet she came into this, this traditional church, and um, she sat and, um, through the service, and, and just as the last song was being played, you know, she, she, she went off, and there was never any chance. And, I always tried to get there, get to the back of the door so I could say hi and, and, and 
One time I did catch her, and I got to know her name, and, uh, you know, and all that, and she sort of scurried off, but you, you could tell uh, by looking at her that she was, um, uh, yeah, life was a challenge for her, and yet there she was in church. She knew there was something that, that uh, church could give her, potentially, that, that she couldn't find anywhere else. And um, I, 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 I uh, came back a few months later to, to um, serve in that church, and the girl was nowhere to be seen. I remember asking one of the members of that church, a long-time member, where, where is this, this girl? Um, you know, and she said, oh, she hasn't been back. And, and I asked, well, what was her name? And this member of the church said, oh, I, I don't know what her name was. And uh, I said, well, how long was she coming before she stopped coming back? And this person said, she'd been coming for about four months. Four months. In and out, in and out, in and out. Scurrying off before anyone could say hello to her. And, 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 and yet no one knew her name. Friends, this, this sort of thing cannot happen. Different church. But are we any better off? Are we any safer? Please, God, we would model things with more grace. But if the poor are among us, what would we do differently? How would we welcome people? How would we posture ourselves towards those who look, sound, speak, smell, dress differently to us? And let's face it, there have been some real encouragements um, at Foundation Church over the years, particularly when we were in our, our other building, um, right in, in South Belfast, and, and, and we saw people from the local area who, who, who uh, fit this description. Um, and, and you have served well. Uh, you, have, you have welcomed. You have uh, got cups of tea. You have uh, helped and, and, and welcomed and, and uh, encouraged. And uh, that's just a wonderful thing. And, and so let's continue on, on that line. We're, we're actually thinking as a church... Um, one, two of us about uh, an exciting uh, ministry opportunity that we have that we're, we're, we're looking at, um, partnering with, with um, a charity that helps local, church, uh, local schools and um, particularly targets extra tuition and help and support for those from underprivileged backgrounds in our local schools. Um, and uh, just, just volunteering a couple of hours a week to get alongside young people and to help them with homework and, and, and give them a bit of uh, encouragement where they may not have anything like that at home at all. Um, and that's, a, that's, that's one way that we can do this as a church. And, 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 and please do stay, stay tuned for more information about that, more, more, more thoughts as we, as we move forward. Um, but yeah, we want to be the sort of church, don't we, that doesn't show partiality towards people because we, we follow the real religion, right? We, the gospel. That's the kind of thing that we want to be renowned for. Maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll specifically plant a church in a deprived community, whatever that means, um, a poor community, a poor area. Um, maybe, maybe that's something that we will do, you know, just purposely go out and serve um, when we're not going to be expecting uh, anything in terms of riches coming back our way. But we want to be the kind of church that reaches out and reaches those on the fringes because that's where God, our Father, directs us. Um, and there's 101 different ways that we can do that, and it's really cool. But let's just think before we move on uh, about the barriers that we have to cross as a church in order to be the kind of church that is welcoming to those outsiders. Um, basically, I think as church people, um, inside the church, let's say, we have to be okay with just two, two barriers. Um, we have to be okay with breaking the status quo, and we have to be okay with feeling a bit awkward. That's pretty much it. That's the only barriers that we have to cross to become the kind of church that is welcoming and open to the poor. That's it. But think about the poor person, whoever that might be, 
Um, that's a very general term, I understand that. Uh, but the, the number of barriers that someone else may have to cross in order to come along and to access uh, church and our church community. Uh, they would need a friend uh, to bring them, most, you know, a contact, someone they know from within, uh, let's face it, you know. Um, they would need to sort of understand that the language that church people speak sometimes, uh, for better or worse, uh, we do speak a, a strange language at times. They would, they, would, they would need to cross the barrier of understanding the Bible and our approach to reading the Bible. And they you know, would need to, 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 to figure out about singing, this thing that Christians do, and they sing the same song. It's like Christian karaoke. You know, and they stood up looking at all the words, singing together. You know, the Christian small talk that we make, that's inaccessible at times. You know, is it okay to smoke? What, what, what should I wear? Are people going to kick me out because that's all I've ever been used to is being rejected? These are the multiple barriers, and you can probably think of many more, uh, to prevent people uh, who are not like us uh, from coming into our church. And we have to think very carefully as we go forward um, how to reduce those and, and make them as um, uh, small as possible. For those who follow the real religion, uh, we want to honor the poor. Uh, not judgmentalism, but mercy. Not rejection, but loving acceptance. Uh, can, we, can we be a church like that? Because Jesus was like that, right? And, and, and we're, we're supposed to be his people. So real religion refuses to show partiality towards the poor. Secondly, and this is very much linked to that, real religion refuses to show partiality towards the law. The law. Look down at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing the sin and you're con and convicted by the law as transgressors. The way you treat people, he's saying here, is a commentary on deeper issues. How you view yourself, how you view God, how you view the world. Your actions will flow from your heart. This is a, this is a principle that we see all through Scripture. So if you obey the royal law, you're doing well. What is the royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. It, why is it royal? James is the only person in the Bible to describe the law as such. Um, but Jesus was asked a similar question, what's the most important law? And Jesus responded, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, he wasn't effectively saying that there's two laws. Um, he was saying that you know, it's two sides of the same coin. To, to love God is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor uh, is a response to loving God. And so James calls this the royal law. It's the one that, 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 that crowns all the other laws. All the other laws in the Bible, all the other requirements are about loving your neighbor as yourself. It can be summed up in that way. So you can see then that partiality, whether it's towards people or, or towards various laws in the Bible or what have you, is a sin. And, and the Bible uses this word here, or James uses this word here as transgressor. A transgressor is, is a kind of an old school word that means lawbreaker. You know, someone who's broken a set of statutes or laws. And he says there that they're liable to judgment and punishment as the law code makes clear. We saw this time and again in our series through the, the Ten Commandments we did uh, last summer. You can go online and find, find out the, that series, uh, Ten Weeks and ten, ten Commandments. And just opening up this idea of the law of God, not some oppressive regime that he was setting up, but because of his grace in freeing his people from slavery to, to Egypt, and, and, and through Jesus, uh, slavery to sin, God says, here is how you should live in response to what I've done for you. And so the law, we see the law as, um, as, as life-giving as opposed to life-crushing. And so James is writing here, uh, back to James, he's writing here to convince those who are following false religion that partiality when it comes to the law is a deadly mistake. 
And there's some, perhaps some evidence in, even in the text that, that there are some within the church who think that breaking parts of God's law is not a big deal. As long as we stick to the big ones. The other stuff, he's not so worried about. How do we know that? Well, he gives us an example in, in, in verses 10 and, and 11. Um, he says, you know, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but do not murder, you've broken the law. You're a transgressor, it says. Just imagine for a second the, the scenario that he is, he is painting here. Um, there is someone up for, for murder, uh, come to trial, and quite frankly, according to the prosecution, it is a slam dunk. Um, they've got DNA evidence. Uh, they've got this guy on camera uh, doing the deed. Um, they found the, the murder weapon. They've got a couple of eyewitnesses. This is uh, you know, a done deal when it comes to finding him guilty. But then imagine that the man stands up um, to give his own um, testimony in court, and he says, well, actually, he says to the judge and the jury, Okay, fine. I'm, I murdered him. Yeah, you got me. But I didn't sleep with his wife. Can you imagine then the judge saying, you know what, you've got a point. He didn't sleep with his wife. Therefore, we'll let you off of everything. Can you imagine? I mean, it's a totally stupid scenario. It would never happen because we know that that would be a travesty of justice. It doesn't matter if he hasn't done these other sins and broken these other laws. He's murdered a guy, and therefore he's, he's guilty, right? He's broken the law. He deserves punishment. So what James is saying here is not about what you haven't done, the laws you've managed not to break. That's good. Thank God for that. But, but if you've broken one or if you've, you've transgressed in some other area, according to God, then, then you're, you're in trouble for the whole lot. In his eyes, James is saying you can't pick and choose what rules to follow. You can't be partial when it comes to God's laws and his requirements for your life. If you've broken one bit, says James, you've broken the whole bit. The law cannot be divided into what is acceptable to break and what is unacceptable to break. It's not how it works. Because you see, when, when, when people are following false religion or fake religion, they do that. They divide the sins into various uh, lobbies, the big sins and the small sins those that, that are respectable and those that are just a bit shameful and try not to break them if you can. The, short, the long and short is this. If you have a low view of God, whatever God it is you, you believe in, then you have a very small view of, of sin and offending that God. If he's very small and, and powerless, then, then offending him is not very easy. And, and what can he do anyway? Because he's not a very powerful God. Fake religion has a very small view of God. One that's easily controlled, easily fobbed off, easily distracted. For those who follow fake religion, the law, whatever that is, is basically an obscure set of rules designed by a sneaky God to test you or annoy you and get you to do something that he wants you to do. That's how people who follow fake religion will view the law. But as we've seen, and as James suggests here, and as we've seen in our series on the Ten Commandments, Real religion, if you follow real religion, you will see the law not as pesky commands to follow to keep God happy. You'll see it as a reflection of God's own character. And as his people, we are to reflect God's character, and we do that by obeying the law. It is not something that oppresses us, it is something that frees us. Think of it like this. The image of God we see in the law, in the Old Testament law, for example, shows God's great concern for justice. His great love, as we've been saying, for the poor. 
his law talks about the right treatment of the very lowest and poorest and most vulnerable in society. His law talks about loving your neighbor. His law talks about demanding forgiveness and, and, and going the extra mile and being fair to strangers and, and avoiding uh, trafficking of people and treating them as commodities. All of this is because the law reflects God's character and his expectations of his children who bear his image. You've been created in God's image. You've been created to do God's image. That's why James calls it the law of liberty, down there in verse 12. You've been created to reflect God. So maybe you can see now why breaking one law is, is, is an offense to God, is bre- equivalent to breaking the whole thing. Because transgressing or messing up or, or, or failing on, on any area is more than just a little mistake. It's more than just something that God can wink at and say, that's fine. Every time we break the law, we devalue the, the image of God. We disrespect the image of our God and what he's done for us. It's an affront to his majesty. It's an affront to his holiness. It dirties his name. It sullies his reputation. Let's face it, it, it disrupts us as well. God has, has put these deep grooves into life, all of life, these deep rhythms of his grace. And, and, and life goes well and life brings joy and, and, and peace and fulfillment when we live in those grooves and we track along the ways that God has intended for his people. When we do that, life is good, society is blessed, the world is protected. When we jump out of those tracks and we start going our own way, it's like a needle scratching across an old vinyl record. It makes a terrible mess and it destroys the wonderful uh, harmony that was intended. That's what happens when we, when we break the law. Whereas fake religion minimizes the Bible's teaching on the law, real religion um, desires to live the whole law. And that's why he says there in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law of freedom. So I wonder about you um, in your life as you, as you look at these words as hard as, uh, as sort of uncompromising as they are. And that's James for you, who is uncompromising. Do you consider yourself to be someone who is striving towards living out the entire law to the glory of God? Or if you are honest with yourself, truth be told, have you sectioned off a part of your heart, your life, God's law? that you know is not in keeping with that rhythm, that groove of his grace? Have you partitioned it off? Have you become partial to the law? Some laws you keep and others you think don't matter. What if that fake religion has started to creep in? Big sins and little sins. Especially in your attitude in this context towards the poor. Have you been making compromises? I wonder. So we have thought to ourselves about how real religion refuses to show partiality towards people. We've seen how real religion refuses to show partiality towards the law. And finally, I want to show you then, hopefully, um, how the gospel overcomes our partiality. How does it help us? Especially if we have identified with with some of these forms of fake religion and thought to ourselves, oh man, I'm more of that than I am of the real real thing. What do we do? How do we flip from one to the other? How do we image and live out more of the real religion of James and the Bible? 
Um, how do we do that? Is it just an act of our will? Do we just decide one day to turn over a new leaf? I'm going to try extra hard to do this. Um, is it something that only nice people can do and sort of bad people or, or challenging people get to get a pass to the next round? In other words, how is it that we can go from, from being a relatively homogenous group of people all looking the same and maybe uh, from similar backgrounds, although there is obviously variety within that, um, how do we go from that, though, to becoming a community which is radically different to the world out there? Because, because the world out there, as we've seen, divides along lines of econom economics and politics and race. But this great vision that, that, that James gives us in, in the church is one of diversity um, where we display together the beauty and diversity of God and of his people. So how can we move from, from, from being relatively insular um, to, to, to being a, a community uh, that is, that is uh, radically different to the world? Well, how do we overcome that partiality if it's there? We overcome it by the gospel of Jesus. The gospel, of course, as we see week after week, is the great leveler. It's the great leveler. Uh, we've seen in James so far that God humbles the proud and he gives grace to the downtrodden. The great leveler. Why does he do that? Because that's his heart. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The heart of God for us. Here's the longer version of the gospel if you've never heard it before. Listen to this. Um, this is the good news. Before the foundations of the world, God always existed. He was always there. He, was a he is a perfect being, a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect in glory, wonder among the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, love, joy, was always there. And out of that love, God created the heavens and the earth simply out of his love because he loved to do that. A, a, a creation that was going to reflect his glory and enjoy his glory and enter into that triune love. That's what God did at creation. That's why he did it. And yet, can you imagine that those created to be most like God? That's us. We rebelled against his loving leadership. We rebelled. We went our own way. We became transgressors of the law. And yet... Because of God's love, his son came down. His son became one of us. He took on himself human nature. The hands that formed humankind out of dust once again came down to the dust to provide healing and to remake us. The son, it says in Philippians 2, put aside his glory and his magnificence and he took upon himself human flesh. He, he got down and dirty in the muck and the mire. He, he mixed among the poor he mixed among the sinful people, and yet he was without sin himself. He gave up his riches. He became a working-class man who oftentimes was homeless, said the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He was downcast. He was mistreated. He was suffered. He was kicked. He was beat up. He was rejected, and eventually they crucified him as a criminal. And yet he did not transgress the law of God, not one bit, not one moment, not one fleeting thought, not one lustful intention, nothing. He's the only one to ever do it. And yet he became as if he was a transgressor of the law. He was treated as if he was a lawbreaker. He received the full punishment for all lawbreaking and all transgression from God the Father. 
One author puts it like this, the sword of God's justice should have fallen on us who are transgressors. And instead it fell on Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel. I told you it's good news. If you believe in him, if you trust that he took your punishment upon himself and he paid for it fully by going into the grave and being risen to life on the third day, when you do that, you have forgiveness for your law-breaking, your transgression. That's why the final words of Jesus when he died on the cross are so astounding. His final words were, it is finished, and then he died. Yes, his life had finished, and that's possibly why he cried those words, and yet he was referring to the completion of a much greater task. He had finished receiving God's furious wrath for our transgressions. It is finished. Jesus tells this amazing story in, in Luke 7. I love it. Um, he, he, he was actually uh, invited to a dinner party uh, with a guy called Simon, who happened to be a Pharisee, a religious man of great learning, um, very, very committed to the law of God. And uh, he was around at Simon's house, Jesus, and presumably some of his followers, his disciples as well. And it says that they were reclining at table. That's the way he did it in those days. He would lie sort of semi, semi-recumbent. Um, eating, and the feet would be stretched out away, pointing towards the, the, the wall, I suppose, um, just engage in conversation and, and eat and drink and all that. That's the way they did it. And it says a sinful woman came in. Sinful woman was like a byword. She's probably a prostitute or a woman of ill repute, something like that. Sinful. She was just known for being a sinful woman. She came in, wept. She was a mess. She wept. So much so that she wet his feet. And then it says that she, she got down and kissed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And then she anointed him with this costly ointment, basically her life savings, her insurance policy. She cracked the lid open and anointed his feet with this costly ointment. You can just imagine the awkwardness right there in that scenario. This woman coming in, this outsider, looking down, you know, being looked down upon by all these religious people. And then Jesus told a story right in the middle of this awkward, cut-it-with-a-knife type session. Really, Jesus, a story right now? Is this really what we need? Just send her away. This is too awkward. Everybody stopped eating. Just imagine, you know, no, no noise of the plate and the knife and fork. And Jesus told a story. He said, Simon, the host, he said, look, there was a moneylender who... who, who had two debtors. One man owed him 50 denarii, and one man owed him 500 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage, right? So we're talking about quite a lot of money. Neither could pay him back, and so he decided to forgive both their debt. Which one, Simon, do you think will love him more? And Simon probably figured out where this was going. He said, well, the one who had the larger debt cancelled will love the master more, right? And Jesus told Simon, therefore, Simon, you have denied me basic courtesies. You did not bring water for my feet to wash, a basic act of courtesy. And yet this woman here has acted lavishly towards me. She has come and washed my feet with her tears and anointed my feet with this costly ointment. And then he gave the punchline, sums all this stuff up. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. 500 denarii, costly ointment, weeping 
Those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, don't give Jesus much. Don't, don't come to him. Don't want to give their lives to him. Don't want to live for him. Why would they? Because they think they haven't really needed too much in the way of forgiveness. They haven't done too much. They're, they're following the fake religion. They, they've, they've, they've signed off on most of the laws and just maybe one or two, Jesus can easily forgive them. So they love him very little. They're not extravagant uh, in their devotion to him. When we look at the law, therefore, when we see the extent of our transgressions in front of the holiness of God, and then when we look at the cross and we see how much we have been forgiven and how much it cost Jesus to provide that forgiveness, then surely we must be lavish and boundary-breaking in our response to the grace of God in Jesus. When we see the extent of what Christ has done and what he did for us and, and, and what he went through for us, to, to, to receive that forgiveness and to experience that healing. The more you see that, the more your partiality will be overcome. The less you will start to see a difference between poor and rich, and the more you will start to love all people, irrespective of background, race, or class. The more you see what Jesus has done for you, the more you will endeavor with all of your ability to live out all of the law, to please him in every area of your life, not just in the big things, but in the areas that you've partitioned off in your life. All of your life you'll give to him in service. When you see how much he has shown for you, how much you will love him back. When you see how much grace he has shown you, you will show grace to other people. That's why James says in verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And the real religion, if you look at Jesus, if you believe the gospel, you will show mercy, you will extend honor, you will show grace to the poor. If you follow the real religion of Jesus and, and his gospel, then you will say, if that's how Christ treated me, then why? It is the law of liberty to live for him. It is life. It is joy. The royal law is joy to me. It's not restrictive. When you look at the gospel, you will say to yourself, how can I fail to love my neighbor as myself? Friends, let's allow, let's allow the radicality of the gospel of Jesus to overcome our partiality as a church and, and us together as his people. Thanks be to God for mercy that triumphs over judgment. Let's pray.